Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 157. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Happy holidays, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 157 you're listening to. My guest today is Dana J., who is an old friend of mine from the late 90s. And uh, Dana has had a long career in the Bay Area as a live sound person, a studio sound person. She's been a president of a record label. And she currently is teaching over at City College of San Francisco, has been since around 2001, teaching in the Broadcast Electronics Media Arts Department, where she's really on the front lines of seeing a new crop of audio pros coming up into the world. And uh, she is there to teach them and guide them. And she is she's fantastic, really fantastic, uh, has a great passion for what she does and a lot of experience as well. So really uh, honored to have Dana on the show. So yeah, Dana J coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So it is the holiday season, of course. I will be traveling to Michigan for Christmas to see family. Of course, might be paid a visit by my greatest enemy next to ants. That would be snow. I know I sound like such a, a, a Grinch when it comes to snow. And truthfully, I do like sledding, and I'm a, I'm a real terrible skier. I won't say that I completely hate it, but, you know, traveling in it and driving in it, and oh, just, it just drives me nuts. Small first world problems, I know. But uh, anyhow, the point is, is the podcast will continue. There will be uh, a podcast released on Christmas Day, so don't forget to listen in. And I will just put this little nugget out there you're going to be really really excited by this interview i know that i have great guests but this guest is uh, truly legendary i'll just say that legendary guest christmas day make sure you listen so that is that many of you know here in uh, california we've been having some pretty devastating fires in the north and now in the south many of you are familiar with the drummer simon phillips fantastic drummer who's been around for years and played with many people incredible drummer really one of my favorites i have to say his house and studio have burned to the ground he's lost everything he's not exactly sure what insurance is going to cover so he has set up a gofundme page which i will uh, put a link to in the show notes so if you go over to working class audio.com episode 157 you will see down there in the show notes a link to this basically he and his fiance and their dog they got out with their lives and uh, of course that's important uh, so the rest of it uh, they're just going to try to rebuild and uh, looks like he's trying to raise two hundred thousand dollars and they're at sixty two thousand just over at this point so uh, yeah if you want to give to simon's fund i will put that link in there so this, of course, when things like this happen, I'm just continually reminded of backing up and insuring and, you know, making sure you inventory everything that you have so that you can deal with insurance companies if in case of disaster. So if you haven't, you know, done that and you're looking for a New Year's resolution, make it that just on a, a an Excel spreadsheet. You're going to inventory all the stuff that you have and you're going to make sure you insure it and um, and make sure that your uh, backup strategy for whether it's your music or your client's music or whatever files you have of your clients, voiceover, game sound, whatever it is, sound effects, make sure you're covered. That's, that can be your New Year's resolution and uh, make sure you, you, you dive in and make it happen. Don't let it uh, slip by. And also make it part of your routine in this next year. Make it uh, a regular thing that, you know, because if you don't, you're just going to just, you're, you're going to make one attempt and you'll fall short of it and then you'll forget about it and then we'll be talking about this next year. You don't want to do that. So make sure you do that. Hey, remember, I am going to be over at NAM. That's January 25th through the 28th. In fact, I'm looking up the email now from my friends over at McDSP because I will be over at the McDSP booth visiting with my old high school friend, Colin McDowell of McDSP 
fame. Colin and I will uh, be meeting and uh, we will talk about, who knows, we could talk about whatever whatever we want. We're going to do a thing. Looks like, uh, what do we say? Oh, Friday at 3 p.m. Yeah. At the uh, McDSP booth. That's uh, The booth number is 14904. So make sure you come on over and say hello. We'll be chatting. I don't know. Going to chat about the podcast. Going to chat about uh, some current projects I'm mixing. Um, and I don't know what else. So just stomp on by. Well, that's it. Let's get on with it. Dana J here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast officially. Thank you. Happy to be here. I hate to say that it's a second attempt, but we met up at City College to chat with your recording class. And I was thinking that we could turn that into an interview, but we ended up talking more about my world and answering questions by the students. So I wanted to have you back and ask you questions about your past. I loved hearing yours, but that was great for them. They really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad they did. Let's go back a bit. What was the pivotal moment that you got into audio professionally? It's interesting because I came through it from a band perspective as a singer in a band and putting together my own bands for original music while I was still at UC Berkeley. So while I was in college to kind of help pay for college, except original music for me wasn't paying and trying to do studies. So it ended up being when I was in top 40, when I started recording, uh, uh, playing live top 40, where I was making significant money in the 80s, in the mid 80s, it was 250 a week, which was decent money. And I could pay for st- without taking out student loans because I had run through all my scholarships and, and Cal grants and things. So my junior year, I needed to start paying for things. Don't have any family money. So that's when I, I would say I officially got into audio, but then it didn't turn into professional audio in terms of a live sound engineer until much later than that, like 86, when I was on the road with this band, we were playing the hotel circuit and I ended up having to do live sound when we were up in Alaska and it was my PA system, but I had to start running it. So I started teaching myself at that point, got some books. When I came back, I started working for friends bands in many of the local venues and I would say I didn't become really professional until I started hanging my shingle and doing DCJ Productions, my sound company, which was like 88, 89. Tell me about the sound company. When I was through with, you know, doing the top 40 thing, I had a PA system. It was a decent little, like, couple EV speakers. I think I had a Tascam M240 16-channel mixer, a, you know, a few mics and stands and things. And then I joined forces with Radley Hirsch who he was uh, at, at one point an editor for Maximum Rock and Roll, punk rock magazine, kind of anarchist pan- punk rock mag. And he had a bunch of speakers. And I started investing in community sound uh, subwoofers, the, the uh, 415s. And I started buying more PA tops and amps. I got some Crest and Crown amps. So together, he and I decided, well, why don't we just put a company together? Because you got a bunch of gear. I got a bunch of gear and it'll make it a lot easier. And he and I uh, started working together. I called it DCJ Productions. And... We ended up in Dana Colleen Jacobson, because that's actually my real name, uh, my, my family name. And we started doing just all kinds of events, everything from all the local parades and, and various live sound events uh, that didn't require somebody like JK. Like JK Sound and the bigger companies have a minimum that they'd go out for. And we do all the smaller nonprofits. I mean, I'd say I'd make a, I made a pretty good living doing live sound for nonprofits for many years. And Radley and I had a business breakup when I started to do sound for some frats in Berkeley. And I had my nephews living with me at the time. So I needed to make a significant amount more, more money. And my nephews came to live with me. And there was a, a gig at one frat party. They're like, yeah, we want to hire you. And I, I took the gig and Radley's like, we're not doing gigs for frats. Fuck that. You know, no way. And I said, well, Radley, I have kids to feed. I have to. Like, I have to do this gig. You don't have to come, you know. So after that night, the funniest thing was, which is funny to me now, but not then. The next day, I show up and all of my stuff is out in his, out of his garage in the Richmond, just sitting out there. P- come pick up your stuff. I'm done. Like, I'm done with you. Just because I did a gig with a frat house. I'm not kidding you. And I thought, oh my God, wow. this is really weird. So... I had my gear that I had taken to the gig. I had a truck at the time, took the rest of my gear. And I went, that really? Like, that's what this is about. That's crazy. But he was, you know, he's an anarchist guy and working for a fraternity was like way off the, you know, even though it was just me, didn't include him. Right. So 
I started going it alone and that was fine. I ended up doing a lot of work in the women's community because a lot of women were like, oh man, there's this woman with sound system and you can come do our events. And there's there was a lot of events going on in the early 90s up through about mid 90s was when I started getting more involved in recording. And I built myself hmm. a little recording studio in my house with some ADATs and a, I got a Soundcraft Ghost at the time. And I could use a lot of the same mics and stands and all that other gear. And I had, by the way, at that point, uh, invested in several monitors and stuff. So I could really do like a pretty decent sized sound event. Um, I did a lot of the Earth Days in Berkeley and different of the East Bay communities. So I could do a gig with at least a minimum of, you know, 500 people up to about a thousand. I had enough small gear that I could, you know, because at that point you could, and I had Mackies at that point, you could just run a bunch of, you know, uh, speakers together pretty easily uh, with, with, just line cables as opposed to running all those amps and stuff I had been using in the 80s and earlier 90s, you know, community speakers with crest and crown amplifiers. And it was a lot less weight to carry around because when I invested in the Mackie 450s, everything was so much easier because everything was powered, powered amps, power, I mean, powered speakers, powered monitors. So it cut down the load of what I had to carry quite a bit. Do you think that that concept of having a, a small uh, sound company nowadays and doing kind of local events, do you think that that is still a viable way to make a living? Yes. I think so because there's still a lot of nonprofits and especially in a time like now where there's many more nonprofit events because of our current political climate, that people don't have enough money to spend the kind of money that a, a sound company like JK would want to, you know, they, they will only take out their truck for a minimum amount of money. They will not just do any gig. But a person who's a solo or maybe a, a team of two had some PA gear, you know, you could do smaller gigs for three to $500 that the other companies wouldn't touch. And if you did three or four of those a week, and there are a lot of them, everything from small events in you know, hotel rooms when a convention's in town, when they're not going to do anything with Local 16. And Local 16's pretty cool about these small nonprofit things, not for-profit, but the nonprofit type stuff. For the audience, Local 16 is is in the Bay Area. Yeah, that's our, our local IATSE, International Association of Theater, theater Stage uh, Employees, Technicians and okay. Employees. And many of my students work for them. Um, and then they also do some side gigs with their own with their own PA gear. And some of these uh -huh. gigs are just spoken word where someone needs a mic to talk to an audience in a small hall, whether it be a church or somewhere else, and they'll pay you 150, 200 bucks. It honestly pays better than working in the nightclubs because as an, uh, you know, I was the first engineer at Bottom of the Hill in 1991. And I think I got my most, the most of my musical chops there. Um, they were paying, you know, less than a hundred bucks a gig when you'd show up at six to do sound checks and you didn't, you didn't get out of there till two in the morning. So the money's not great in the clubs and they can't pay more. I mean, it's not them being stingy. It's that they're not making a lot of dough either. Would you say that while the money's better, are the challenges more prevalent in say doing like nonprofits and community type gigs? Because when you're working in clubs, there generally is an existing PA system and power structure. That's right. When you're doing community gigs, there's power challenges. Yep. People not knowing exactly like what you need, space requirements, power requirements. And did you have a lot of challenges in that world? Well, I learned through reading books about how much power I'd need for the systems I had. So I would often have to rent a generator. And at the time, there was a great company in San Francisco called Toolmaster, where all of the local construction firms rented their power and needs and, and other equipment that they didn't have. And oh. that company has gone away, but another company is still there where you can get small Jenny's little, you know, smaller generators. But there were times where I'd have to get a 6,500 watt generator for like a big show outdoors. People like JK and other companies sound on stage. They've got, of course, all their whole arsenal of their own generators. But the challenges would be going into a place like I'm going to, this is very funny. There's the power in Dolores Park Cafe. I did a ton of little gigs there. They had one outlet for everything, including the PA system, the band, the band's amps that show up. It was right right behind the ATM machine. So the ATM machine took one, and I got another, and it was a 20-amp circuit. And, but I made it work. Like, I, I couldn't believe I could make it work. It actually, you know, it, 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 the first time I plugged it, I said, you know, Rachel, I'm not sure this is going to work. She's the, Rachel Herbert, the owner. And I said, but I'm going to try it, and we'll see. And it actually, 
you know, the Mackey stuff is fairly power efficient and you don't have to get very loud in that club, but I would, uh, club, it's a cafe, but I would always laugh like the bands would bring in these huge amps. I'm like, you guys, you really don't need these, these large amps. You know, this is going to take a lot more power from the, from the little power that we have. But there, there are challenges if you don't understand electricity, which is why electricity is a big part of my live sound class I teach here at the college, because you can't do live sound and not understand that. You could kill somebody if you get it wrong, you know? If you've got any kind of water anywhere and you have cables running through water and you don't know that water is like the worst thing anybody could be near, standing in it, whatever kind of puddle. I'll never forget in the 80s, I saw a band at the Mabuhe Gardens and the the keyboard player was sitting on a on a, a cooler that was leaking water and he's he was hitting his pedals with his feet and everything. And I was like, oh my God, it I just made me think that just doesn't seem right. I was standing near the side of the stage and someone ran up and pulled the plug on everything, said, no, no, no. It was like, I think the band's manager. It, because some people know that electricity and water don't go together. <laughs> but you, <laughs> Some people, some, not everybody. Not everybody, which is, which is why it's really important to learn that stuff. Okay, so here's a question for you. This is a, this is a total geeky technical question. So we had a we had a clogged uh, sewer pipe here at our house, yeah. and we had this plumbing company come out, and the guy had the snake feeding into the to yeah. the clean out, and he had with him an insertable GFCI cable. Oh yeah, on on the snake. Is that a tool that live sound people use? A, like a, a an insertable GFCI circuit within a line. Not an insertable. Most people will carry their own power line conditioner, like a Furman AR220 or something that's their own conditioner, as opposed to, because you will be using a lot more power than he would have needed for that snake. Because yeah. he, he, you know, the snake was probably, it probably generates a bit of heat, which is why he was concerned about it. But you would probably want something that's just going to make, especially today, Matt, the, the digital consoles absolutely need a perfect 110 volts. They can't, or 120, they cannot. They will, they, they will loot the sample rate, the clock, if it dips even for a second, the consoles lock up. So now more than ever, if you're buying like a digital console, you need to make sure you've got totally clean power, which is an, a new wow. odd thing to add to the mix. Yeah. D I, excuse the pun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And who knew? I mean, you know, a kid deciding that I know enough about live sound, I could do this. If they buy a digital mixer, which is what most everybody's doing now, getting the Behringer X32, it's the most common one. And all of a sudden, they're finding that they plug in somewhere and there isn't a, there is a circuit that's fluctuating. Their gig is going to go up and down the whole time. Like suddenly the mixer just locks up and nothing is nothing's happening anymore. You just see your meters lock up. You're like, what's going on? Why aren't the mics working? You have to reboot everything. Yeah. Wow. Now in pro settings, people don't have to worry about that. But if you're going to do a lot of these little gigs with a digital mixer, you better buy a little Furman, you know, power conditioner to ensure that you're going to get a solid flow of, of electricity. A solid 110 or a solid 120? E either one. Like if, as long if they went on 110, but 120 is like the standard, but they'll run onto 110. But a lot of times it'll dip down to 104 or 102 yeah. in certain facilities if they don't have clean power. Interesting. And I wonder yeah. I wonder what the how the power requirements in Europe uh change that. Like, you know, if you're if your mixer runs at 220, then can can it go down to 200 because it's running at, at a higher voltage? That's or? a good point. I don't know actually. I know that they all have they all have got a flip switch now that you can flip to the the 220 circuit over there. But I wonder if it actually can if the sample rate, I, I have a feeling it wouldn't because the clock needs to have the regular voltage. So whether it's 220 or 120, it's got to have the voltage not fluctuating That because that's what changes the, the timing. You'll get not just jitter, but the whole thing will lock, lock up. So what are some of the business lessons you learned out of those years of running a, a, a small live sound company? Oh, man. A lot of it is keeping insurance, which is the thing that every small business in America says can run them out, meaning they could, they could go out of business very easily because insurance is very expensive. And I always had to carry insurance because you're setting up systems where anybody could become injured. You know, a speaker, even a Mackie 450 on top of a, an ultimate support speaker stand, if somebody trips on a cable and that stand goes one direction or another, it could hit somebody and it could kill them. So you have to keep insurance. And it, I had to learn a lot about small business on my own. And thank goodness for Nolo Press, where, where I taught myself about small business. 
And then you've got to make payments to like, if you have employees, mine were all under the table type of employee, like, okay, Matt, show up with me at a gig and I'll, you know, pay you 150 bucks to help me from beginning to end. And it's off the table. But if you're on the table, you've got to play the EDD stuff, which I didn't get into until later when I had a legitimate um, LLC with Buds when we had uh, the the label in the in the studio. That's a mutual friend of ours that we'll we'll get into that topic. In oh a little yeah, bit. yeah. When you have a business that is legitimate LLC and you're paying LLC state tax and all that, you've got to ensure that you're covered on the employment development uh, department, which is. The, in every in every uh, state, there's you've got the agency that's ensuring that workman's comp is being paid into. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a it's a it's a big one, and that's if you're having you know legitimate employees. Um, the uh, the thing about live sound that I learned a lot too is how to show up to a place and be able to set up a whole gig before sound check, because if you're doing events that are not in a club that's not where the PA is not set up you have to work in all that extra time so I got really good at scheduling I mean that's I think what's made me a better teacher because I, I'm really good at scheduling and showing up places absolutely not only on time but early and it's really it's really hard to teach young people this these days you know that's that's a big one well and also the uh, the physical demands of hauling a PA system oh yeah you know even if you're the strongest person in the world i mean still certain certain pieces of equipment are awkward yeah heavy that's right especially the subwoofers i'm sure there's a lot of lessons learned there as well as transporting that equipment yeah oh yeah how to pack your truck properly. I had an open bed truck and you had to plan if there was going to be rain, I had to rent something else. I had to get a, a van. But my open bed, the t- I had a Toyota long bed, which fit everything amazingly. And funny enough, when I switched for a while to a Toyota Corolla, I was I was not doing as many gigs anymore. I was I had moved into teaching and not doing so much live sound, but I had to every now and again. I found a way to fit everything into a Corolla as long as I had no passenger. <laughs> I could fit the small wow. mixer, two mains, 10 to 12 mic stands and four monitors in a Corolla. <laughs> it was amazing. I kept saying, man, I should be a commercial for these people. <laughs> but wow. uh, it was, it was, um, it's challenging, but you learn how to do all that stuff, packing, scheduling, budgeting. You know, I mean, sometimes you take a loss if you didn't budget properly for the timing or you didn't bring the right amount of gear and suddenly have to get something spur of the moment. You got to be really on top of that stuff. And I think it really helps to do it's It's so much easier. I mean, it's so much easier in a studio when everything's all set up. And that's what I found where I started moving in that direction. Live sound is just such hard work. How did you get into studio work? That was when I started doing it on my own, buying a couple of ADATs and a ghost that I put in a house I was living in, in Bernal Heights. And I had already been, I mean, studio recording was really like the first thing I played with in the early 80s before I did any professionals. When I was just at Cal thinking I was going to go off and be an attorney. You know, I was like, it was just a hobby of mine to work with my Tascam Porta, Porta Studio, the little cassette four track. And I mm-hmm. totally enjoyed, you know, working the, the cassette four track and laying down guitar parts and singing. It was just kind of a fun thing. I never thought I'd ever make it a career in terms of recording. But once I had been doing enough live sound, it was so exhausting. I said, God, it'd be nice to like switch up some of these live gigs with being in the studio for a few weeks, like recording people. So I invested, so I sold a couple monitors. I invested some money and some ADATs. And over time, I got a ghost. And I got the ghost through working through Leo's. I I was a purchasing agent for them. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things, such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. I want to just fill the audience in. So we're going to be mentioning some pro audio companies in the Bay Area. And Leo's Pro Audio yeah. is was one of the oldest ones. That's right. Since 55, it was around in, in Oakland. 1955. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yep. no longer in business, but no uh, longer, yeah, uh, yeah. kind of kind of a Bay Area pro audio institution That's right. followed by audio images and cutting edge. And and Leo's, um, the, I had bought gear there in the early days. That was the first place I went to buy my little PA with the, you know, the Tascam and the EV speakers that I used in the, in, in my, li- in my uh, live sound band that I had in the, the top 40 band. But over time, when I was not, tour- when I was not um, doing live gigs, and I toured for a little bit in 93, 94 with a band called Medicine out of LA, when I wasn't touring, I'd get off the road and I, I, I was, I was, told, well, you know, you know a lot about purchasing because I worked at Leo's in 89.90 when I was buying a lot of my live sound gear. I bought it at cost being the assistant purchasing agent there. And I learned a lot about purchasing. Uh, Lori Schifrin, who's, who, is, who is a person who's still a friend of mine over these years, and she's been very much involved in the, dead, the Grateful Dead community, very much a, a supporter okay. of that and part of their, their community. And um, a lot of the guys from Cutting Edge, same with them. That, that they previously were at Leo's. So I met this whole community of people through Leo's Audio that in turn I'd become, you know, I stayed with over time. When Leo's Audio, some of them left to go form audio images, I went with them. And I still was doing my engineering stuff, but in those years it was sort of the formative time where I was buying gear at employee cost, which is, you know, a far better deal. And you could sometimes pay it over time, <laughs> which was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So the magic of employee cost oh, or, yeah. or, or of, of dealer cost. It's incredible. And, and, you know, people were understanding of my schedule, which sometimes be like, I'm not going to be in until a little bit later. Cause I've got a gig tonight or I'd be at bottom of the hill till two in the morning. And they were very open about it, even though it was, you know, a, somewhat of a full-time gig at Leo's. I was the, I was the assistant, but then I became the purchasing agent and the manager over it, over it cutting edge when they started and uh or audio images and then cutting edge and in between all that i was working sound and having my studio at home the adat studio i had were you making money at your home studio yes yeah okay i would say it was it wasn't enough to make a living on but i made it as supplemental income to doing live sound and doing purchasing agent work and, okay. and I've always sort of had a career of doing several things at once until midway through teaching when I started teaching full-time. When I was teaching part-time, it was the same thing. It, it was the gig economy for me. I was still doing live sound, recording. In the mid-90s, I added film sound when a friend of mine said, I really need you to do sound on my, my documentary I'm, do, I'm working on. And I said, I don't, I don't do film sound. She's like, sure you do. You, you do live sound. Of course you could do film sound. <laughs> She's like, it's, it's a portable mixer and a portable recorder and two mics a lav and a shotgun mic. And I said, well, that, I guess that does sound easy. And she's like, just here, here's a book, check this out. You got to get the dialogue. That's the most important thing. And it was really funny, Max. I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is really easy. Now to people out there that do this for a living, it's, it's not easy, right? But to someone who comes from live sound where you've got bands playing outdoors, festivals where you've got 10 bands in a day and you're changing bands and sometimes you're the stage manager and the front of house engineer and running monitors, you know, on these... On the smaller gigs, you really learn a lot. And it seems so easy to do film sound, production sound. And then it was like, <laughs> wow, this is a dream. And then my favorite was, then they'd say, if, if you did a good job, you know, you keep copious notes on a, on a sound log, you label all your files. I mean, in the early days of labeling files and all that, I was doing that way before, you know, like getting, keeping everything totally together. And it probably comes from writing reports in college and just knowing you have to keep track of everything, you know, on paper. And when I when I'd be on set, if they liked me or if they, hey, do you do sound design too? Do you think you can mix this? Can you do some ADR? <laughs> and all of a sudden, I I got into film sound, like or you know, independent film sound. But it was what I've loved about it the whole time has been independent work. 
being an independent. And having that diversification of the and different income streams. Yes. And there and then you've got to really understand how to run a business, you know, cuz you're running your own business. The nicest thing about that is you can write off a lot of stuff. I mean, when you think about all the things you do, your your everything you do is pretty much work. No one can refute that you're not working at any given time when you're writing off a meal, gas, you know, it's, 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 it, you know, you have to keep track of everything really well and be very organized, but I've never had any issues with, with tax and my own self-employment or anything like that. Cause I keep really good copies of everything. I think ultimately we met via audio images or cutting edge. Yeah. That's uh, one of the things we have in common. We, we uh, have a tie into that pro audio retail part of the Bay Area. For the audience, I had gone to work over at a studio called Studio 684. There was a, a engineer producer there who ran it named Buddy Salman. I think we've, we figured out that I, I contacted you or said, I think you and Buddy Salman should meet. I think that there's some commonality there. Yeah. And long story short, uh, right. you guys got into business with each other. Yeah, it was great. I mean, Buddy had a great studio and I had a lot of contacts and I was working in the field a lot as a live sound engineer at Bottom of the Hill. I had clients that were already my clients, but I had a small home studio and he had a much more professional studio. And Buddy had a also a, a clientele of his own. So actually coming together and putting that together and then deciding, well, why don't we start a record label? You know, he's got a number of talented artists that he was working with that all sort of wanted to be part of a label. I had organizational experience. So uh, and I also had a band at the time called Come Lily that I that was a band of seven women, and we were putting out recordings with no with no women's names associated with. We all made up names so that people would go, "Man, that guy on sax is awesome." And who's that dude on drums? He's amazing. And we were just tr trying to find out, like, what would people say about a band when they had no idea who was actually in it, who had taken up pseudonyms. Right. So. Buddy loved that idea too. So we decided to put that together. We'd record Come Lily. We'd record Austin Willisey and Sweet 304 and, and uh, Veronica Lester. There was a bunch of different people that, that came from his realm. And right. we said, well, let's put a label together. So suddenly I was out trying to raise money for the label. And Buddy, Buddy also had Don, who was amazing, who's also a performer, a, a, a singer-songwriter and great guitar player. And he was recording with Buds. And he's like, he was an investor at the time. He's like, well, I got some money. Let me invest in this. This sounds great. So Don became one of our partners as well. And what was, you know, really great about it was Bud's taught me a lot about mixing and producing that I thought I already knew, but he knew far more than I than I did. And yeah. he's he was a very good leader with the artists. Like, you know, he had a command with the artists that that still to this day I'm sure is amazing because I know he's still doing it. And um and I had the organizational side. So in the time that I was with Buds and we had Studio 684 and, and uh, Artist Production Group, which was the name of the, the, the studio and the label. Oh, APG, APG right, right. Yeah. It, I sort of started taking over all the business side and I stopped doing so much sound. I, was, I, I felt kind of weird because I was doing more business than, you know, he was the, the creative director and the, and the engineer. So I started doing a lot more business stuff, which is not my the most fun thing. But I do it well. So I said, okay, I'm doing this because we, we, we got a good thing going here. Let's keep this going. And over time, um, I started, I kept doing, you know, a few gigs here and there, but I got a gig at City College. My friend Terry Winston that runs Women's Audio Mission, she was here at City College. And one day she came to me and said, I need you to write a letter for me. I know you have a company you work for. It's a, it's a recording label in a, in a company. And you've worked with me in the past and I need a letter of recommendation for my tenure. And she said, I know I know a lot of people, but I'm coming to you because you have letterhead. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> You've got a bona fide company. I'm like, I'd love to write you a letter. So I wrote her a letter on, on APG Records letterhead and mentioned how we'd worked together in the past, though she wasn't part of APG. And three weeks after she passed through her tenure stuff, she called me and said, I need you to work for us. I need, I need a teacher in the, that can do hands-on with the students. I said, oh, dude, I, I, can't, I can't teach. I'm not a teacher. She said, oh, yeah, I've seen you work with your interns and stuff at the studio and, and what you guys do. And, I said, and I've seen you work with people in all the live sound gigs. I said, yeah, but that's different. There's a whole level. And I said, I don't have a teaching credential. I don't have a master's. She said, in our department, you don't have to have a master's. You have a degree, right? And I said, yes, but it's in humanities. From Berkeley, it has nothing to do with sound. She said, but you've been doing sound for years. Come over and watch me lecture one day and tell me what you think. So 
I came over here to City College. I watched her. And while she was lecturing, I kept thinking, oh, my God, I have 10, 15 analogies I can pepper this lecture with right off the top of my head. I looked over the book she uses that SF State uses as well. And I said, wow, this is pretty cool. And I said, well, what does it pay? And she said, well, I think, you know, for part time, it's 65 bucks an hour. I'm like, what? 65 bucks an hour? She said, yeah, I mean, that's like, it, everyone starts at a different level, but that's like the general level. I'm like, okay, wh- where where do I sign? <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was like, oh my God, I've been hustling for 20 years to make you know, far less than that, but certainly having a happy career and making enough. So I came in, I found it very easy to work in this department. It's an amazing department, broadcast electronic media arts at City College of San Francisco great staff and great faculty colleagues and a really very open department chair who said, Dana, you know a lot about live sound. Why don't you write a class in live sound? I mean, this is after I've been here for a while as a part-timer. And it was really cool. The next thing I know when Buddy and I were having our Fridays at five, this is after everything crashed in the dot-com economy. We had a second studio, Fourth Street Studios, that we had put some money and time into. And we had some elaborate parties there that were showcasing artists, put on some really cool shows. We met up, up several other people that started working with us. And this is where we were starting to grow out of our pants a bit. This is what was difficult because the dot-com economy fell apart, but we were still getting a lot of those people coming around to our events because they're, they're basically trying to look for new gigs. And yeah. we were putting out music, but it wasn't selling anymore because CDs just weren't a way to go. We had a distribution deal with EMI, which I think tanked us the hardest because you you know, you know pay for the CDs going to them through their distribution networks and then you pay for the CDs to come back when they don't sell. It, it's just crushing. And you pay for press, you pay for a you know, radio promoter. It's a lot of money to be in a record company, which is what I, I these days, I, when my students come to me and say, oh, I want to start a record label. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, I know. Oh man, really, you don't want to do that. Find something else in the career you love. But really, yeah. that's not maybe the way. Have a, maybe have a random organ removed. That's probably a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You don't need that spleen. <laughs> right. So, you know, during that time, I met a bunch of people. And then another college comes around saying, hey, you know, I hear you teach at City College and you, go, you got this great. We need, we need a teacher at the Art Institute in San Francisco to teach computer apps and a sound for animation class. And I'm like, well, uh, sure, I'll come take a look. You know, I mean, I wasn't looking for a gig, but that was just another thing that opened up the way City College opened up a door that I never considered walking through. I would have never applied for a job here because I never considered myself a teacher. So these doorways, as the label was, you know, closing in terms of closing around me and like we were losing money and it was just becoming a, a bad venture to be part of anymore for both of us, both Buddy and I, we ended up, um, he ended up continuing his the business and he had turned it into Potrero Post already, where we were doing a lot of sound for 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 independent film, and so we had been, mm-hmm. you know, do, trying to save ourselves in that route for about a year, going that route, and then I got more teaching jobs. So I was, you know, it was kind of a natural. I was starting to go in a different direction, and the Art Institute gig was not good. That's where I saw what a for-profit college is like and really did not enjoy that. I mean, they had me in a room teaching you using Vegas video, that that program to teach an audio class. And I was like, you cannot teach, you cannot use, it's not even a consumer level, excellent video editing program, let alone the couple of audio tracks you can run through. What on earth? Wow. Yeah, it was really bad. And I was like, but at City College, we have all these things and all these kids are paying all this money to be here. So I made it through for a few years there because it was still a gig, you know, paying me money, but I finally just had to go. Like it was crushing my soul to see these people spending money. And I really didn't feel right to say to them, hey, quietly, like, hey, come over to City College. It's cheaper. We have better (laughs) gear. You know, that felt weird because I'm being employed by this other school. So I just had to leave it. It felt too, it was too tough for me in my soul. And so a a position came up when Terry Winston was starting her own nonprofit. And I helped her with starting a women's audio mission. And she needed to take a leave. And so I took over all her classes. So I was basically substituting for her for a couple of years. And then at one point, the union here came to me and said, you know, you've been substituting for four semesters in a row. And there's we have a, a rule here, a law at the college that if you sub for somebody for two semesters in a row, they have to offer you offer you a full-time job. Would you like a full-time teaching job? I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah, that oh, I can yeah. I can stop doing a hundred things. You know what I mean? Like all the other right. things I was doing. Live sound, I was still doing film sound, I was still freelancing and teaching. So that's where the whole, you know, career path started changing into only teaching. And that was that was a nice move to make. So how long have you been at City College in total? 17 years now. It's hard to oh believe it. Oh my gosh. It. I know. I, I still can't believe it. 2001 was when I got the gig here. And I'm going okay. into spring of 2018. It's like I'm entering my 17th year. It's really weird to, to think that. I mean, I'm three years away from potential retirement here. But it, it, I mean, the pension would never pay enough to live in the Bay Area. So I'm, I'm certainly not ready to retire. But I'm already looking at something else I want to do with my life that's not sound related. There's some key questions that we always ask in the podcast. And over the years, in total, I mean, what would you say, uh, like, how have you dealt with a wor your work-life balance over the years? Well, it... If you love what you do, which I have in every aspect of this, I work way more than I have Dana time or than I've had time in relationships. When you're with someone who really appreciates that, it's awesome. Like being with someone who's also equally driven is a great thing mm -hmm. in terms of personal life, right? But if you're with somebody who needs a lot of attention and you're a worker bee like I am, it's really hard. I, I'm Luckily, I have not experienced that, you know? And I've never had anybody that says, I wish you'd spend more time with me than in your career. I mean, a lot of times when you're in a career like this, people want to go hang out with you where you are because you're at great events. You're either at a live sound event, if you're in a recording studio gig, you know, sometimes your partner can come and visit you. It's not like being in a cubicle somewhere where, you know, your work life is completely separate from your, from your, your home life. But I'll say that the hardest thing to me is the, the teaching gig has gotten way, way harder to do in terms of the state requirements for keeping paperwork on things like student learning outcomes, data, data. They want data assessment of everything you do. You have to update your course outlines every three years. And in, in the field of audio, that's not hard to do because we, things change constantly. You know, look at us going into yeah. the whole Dante thing and all the AES 50 and all that. It's like there's, I mean, now I have to become a networking engineer practically. I mean, on a very small scale, but I have to learn more about that. And I am. Right. I'm taking, you know, professional development is like regular now. But the balance once you start teaching is really hard because I, my teaching is, I swear, 80 hours a week of not just student time, but all the other duties you have to do at a college when you're full-time tenured. There's a lot of stuff. You have to belong to committees that have nothing to do with what you teach, but you have to contribute. And I've been spending a lot of time doing that. And I'm finally at a point where this coming spring, I'm backing off of a lot of those duties and I'm going to teach two days a week, but all my classes on Tuesday, Thursdays. So I'll be here Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with a Friday through Monday that I can do Dana projects, which I'm very excited about. It'll be the first time in a long time that I can focus on my own personal projects, which includes sound and, you know, doing audio, but not working for somebody else. You know what I mean? Working for yeah. myself. What's been your relationship with audio and money over the years and how have you what are some of the lessons out of that that you've learned in, to be in the, in this field whether it's film sound live sound studio teaching what are some of the financial lessons you've learned that you could pass on to others well i'd say i think the the what pays the least is working in clubs working as a sound engineer in clubs, no matter if it's the independent or slims or something smaller like bottom of the hill, the amount of hours you spend doing what you do, that's the least amount of money, but it's very rewarding and you learn a lot because you're every mm. night is different or every, you know, every time you go, you've got two or three bands you're working with and you get a lot of experience. And sometimes those people pick you up for recording gigs or touring with them. I've found that you make more money doing film sound or episodic television type sound. That's definitely the best pay out there. It's also got the strongest union mm -hmm. in terms of you having a certain amount of pay that you get for being the boom operator, for being, I mean, if you're doing a union gig, for being the production sound mixer on set. If you're a sound designer or an ADR recordist, auto, automated dialogue recording, and you're doing ADR for people, I mean, you could charge a pretty decent amount of money. And interestingly enough, filmmakers, even independent filmmakers, have more money than bands to spend. Now, gone are the days where labels are paying for the recording. So when you're dealing with a band, you got to deal with their budget and you've got to be able to work within their low budget. And um, I mean, you know, in local bands, not, not, in, not mm -hmm. something that's a larger band, but local bands. But local independents, they do Kickstarter campaigns, you know, they get money together. 
And they have to pay for the people working on set with them. They know that you're collaborating with them to make this happen. One of the things I've learned is that I've done a lot of free work for filmmakers. um, And that just gets you in your name out there with people, especially when you're starting out. Like, you, okay, I bought a fishpole boom. I got a good shotgun mic. I've got my sound devices recorder. I'm going to hang my shingle and be a production sound mixer. You got to work for free a couple times so people know that you're reliable and that you're really good. And one of the tips I've always told my students is that if someone says to you, I can give you food while you're working with me, copy and credit. So you'll get a copy of the film when it's done, credit in the film to add to your portfolio. The first thing I do is I look up films that they've done. I get a list of what they've done and I see if they've actually finished films. That's the biggest deal (laughs) (laughs) because the credit is worthless if they are not, if they don't know how to finish. And there's some people who love production and can't get a film completed, but then you've got people who've already been in several film festivals and you're like, yeah, okay, this person is clearly, they finished their work, which means my name will be out there. There's also awesome 48-hour film festivals for people to do where you've got 48 hours to put a whole film together and you meet some amazing people that you can now go, okay, you know, Matt and I are going to start working together or Matt's a filmmaker and he's going to start using me as his sound designer and production sound mixer and I'm going to do eight things for his next next feature he's working on or his next doc. But money-wise... I think there's way more in sound for visual media. And now I have to call it that because the visual media realm is is everywhere, right? It's yeah. podcasts, it's commercials. It's um, And not just commercials for television. I mean, television's kind of a, it's becoming a bit of a dinosaur, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how much yeah. time my kids spend watching YouTube. Yeah. Yes. And and learning things, you know, yep. like Oh yeah. My we were having a discussion this morning uh or this early afternoon where my oldest and I were talking about ramen noodles and he said, "Well, you know, I watched a really great YouTube video on the history of ramen noodles and <laughs> did you know that it was started wow. in Japan around uh in the 1950s and I was like looking at him like, "What?" Oh my god. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. That's amazing. 11 years old and he's telling me this. But yeah, so while, you know, not every documentary about ramen noodles on YouTube has a big budget, but there are some opportunities out there in Absolutely. the world of yes. YouTube creation. And what's interesting, I mean, the gaming market right now is huge. That's where a lot of people are getting, I would call it a cubicle job for sound because the gaming companies need sound engineers. And now we're getting into VR and augmented reality. There's going to be jobs Mm. there. What I found from a few different industry advisories, which we have to have at the college every year when you're in a career tech program like this one, career tech education, they call it CTE programs. You have to have an industry advisory, which are pros from the field who come to your department, sit with you for a few hours, look over all your course outlines, your curriculum, and make sure that you're running your industry uh, the industry standard, the way the industry would hire people. It's very tight. You know, it's it's a very oh, yeah. smart thing. Like we just can't run willy nilly and say, oh yeah, I'm still doing, you know, I'm still using an old uh, DAT machine to record, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that, that just not going to fly. So what's, what's interesting is I was told that by several of the guys in the, in the gaming community that came for a game sound uh, program industry advisory, they were like, you know, Dana, there are people now preparing at Kaiser, at FedEx, at all the big companies having their own little media center where you're making media just for them. They don't want to hire people freelance anymore. They, they've got enough work where they are getting audio engineers, a little video production team, and they're putting together all their own stuff. And now they're getting game designers so that, like, let's say you want to learn how to invest in the future. Forget watching a video. Pretty soon you're going to be playing a game that teaches you how to do these things. They said they know people, the market's flooded with video, so our next step is going into making little mini games. How do I do this at the bank? How do I ship a package with FedEx? I mean, I was pretty Amazing. floored. Well, I mean, the fact that all these companies are creating their little own self-contained media groups yes. or media labs, that presents a lot of opportunity for a lot of people who may not end up being you know, the next great producer or engineer, That's right. but could very easily make a solid living yeah. working for Kaiser Permanente doing, you know, some kind of media 
Development. So true. Yeah. And it may wow. not be the sexy gig that you think you want because you're looking at producers and, you know, and, and, and bands and you want to work with people. You're not always going to get that gig. But all along the way, there's gigs that you can keep making money to keep yourself fresh, to keep buying gear, buying software, buying plugins, you know, all the things that you might want to have to keep your career going, you know, as opposed to... Yeah going somewhere else and getting out of the business entirely. There's also the AV technologists out there, the people who are plugging stuff in and getting getting all this Dante stuff plugged in and working. That's a whole nother level. I mean, the people who are audio engineers don't want to do that work, but a lot of people who just don't, you know, some of my students I know that are never going to make it in that because they're not they're not uh, social enough. If You got to be social to actually get clients. But there are, <laughs> you really do. And if you're not, there's still work for you because a lot of these companies, these AV tech companies need people to plug everything in, to run, okay, here's the spec. I need you to run this ethernet all through this building and we're going to tap it over here. The technologist that's part of making the network happen may not be you, but you'll be doing the labor and you can make 40 bucks an hour doing that. So there's, there's definitely some great work in that for a lot of the younger people or people who just do not, I mean, because some of that's backbreaking work. You got you to gotta crawl around and bend through spaces and stuff, but it's really good work and you could still start building your own creative arsenal of things while you're doing that, which is how my career, you know, I kept moving through all different things as I was, and I tell my students, don't get into just one thing, do it all. How have you learned to deal over the years with disappointment? Because we both know there's a lot of disappointment uh, in the world of, yes. of professional audio. There, there, there is. Um, I think you, you, you know, you have to let yourself feel the pain or the sadness when something happens. Like, you know, you, you have a partnership with somebody in a company and you go, okay, we just can't be this company anymore. Or man, I'm losing way too much money. We can't do this anymore. Or you lose a gig. Someone badmouths you. You have to just let the pain go through it. Like, don't just put it off because you got to learn from whatever it was that got you into that place. And then you have to just pick up and start again. And you have to have that inside you. I think some people are better at it than others, but you have to have enough self-esteem to say, you know what, I'm not going to let that bring me down. Yes, for two weeks, I was totally depressed and I didn't get much done, but man, I got to pick it up. I got to I gotta go out and get the next client. And I got to make sure that I don't have that name in my portfolio or my resume because I'm not going to have someone out there bad-mouthing me, right? So, you know, when, when, when I was coming through, we didn't have LinkedIn and all these things that are now great resources for a personal portfolio online. I've now found from some of my students that they were able to find out if someone who they're looking, seeking a job with looked at their portfolio. You could tell there's analytics. So you could see if that yeah. person checked your portfolio. There was no way. We were just putting stuff out. Remember, we, I mean, I remember having to put stuff out on DVD to say, here's the films I worked on. Here's what I did. And then when the internet became much easier, although that's questionable now whether that's going to be the case, to showcase your work, it was pretty cool to just go, yeah, here's my portfolio. It's all online. It's, it's you know, that it's made all of that a lot easier. For, for people. Well, so you're on the front lines of with education in the world of audio. What's if I were to ask you, you know, what's what's the temperature of the job prospects out there for those entering into a recording program like City College at San Francisco? What are the possibilities? I think for me in terms of what I teach them and why I tell them to do all of the type of classes take live sound and recording and go for that AV technology certificate is so that if they don't find the job right away they're looking for, they still can fall back on one of the other things. So there's a lot more work in live sound, game sound, and AV technology than studio work. And the yeah. studio work they're going to find is going to be their own if they start their own little setup. And some of them, they put together a really nice chain, a really good mic, a good audio interface, they get Pro Tools on a current computer, and they might start just a little rap studio where, where somebody's coming in and doing voiceover and rap, and they're doing, maybe they do beats themselves, or maybe somebody's bringing in beats. It's a great way to start. You know, you can make small 25 bucks an hour doing something like that if you've got a decent space for the, for the talent to come to, which is another thing. Mm -hmm. It could be your home or your apartment, but as long as you've set up a decent chain you know, a decent uh, signal path, signal chain. Um, and then again, you have to know how to deal with people. But I think recording is harder to do nowadays for, you know, in terms of your own business and harder to get a job at studios that are going out of business, Then there's many of them, than it is to just 
go to the other paths. Try film sound, try live sound. Keep your studio work going if you can, but the more you know about the other things, you actually bring all that back to the studio when you're in the studio, which is great, even if it's your home studio with a small two-channel chain. A lot of bands also like to be recorded remotely. So it's really good. I tell people get a rack. These days with like Orion, the the Antelope Audio Orion, like you can have a single rack space, 32 track recording system. It's going to cost you some money for the snakes, the breakout snakes, because everything's on DB25. But you could, you could do some pretty cool stuff for somebody with very little gear these days if you go to a, if you go to a club and you're recording them live. Or there's the places like some clubs that have an avid S6 or something in place where it's really easy to connect up a laptop to. Even even an X32 or any of the smaller digital mixers, you could just record directly from, from the digital mixer. But when you have a chain of something that's remote, separate from the mixer, that's the, the house mixer, it's actually really professional. You can get a great recording out of that. So I tell people, you could be a recording engineer, but you just have to be willing to not necessarily be in one place. You have to be able to get around. And I've found that a lot of younger people today don't have cars and don't want to have cars, at least urban in urban areas. In San Francisco, all of my students under 22 have no desire to have a car ever. And I'm like, well, you're going to have a hard time doing this for a living then, unless you work for somebody and you can hop a train or hop Muni and go somewhere. You certainly can't do live sound. I, I will say this, you know, and I and I see this, of course, the dis, the discussion of self-driving cars and, and and the possibilities of that in the future. That aside, nowadays, I mean, if you do have a small recording rig that you could carry in two hands, uh-huh. you can jump in a Lyft or an Uber and you know, fly across just about anywhere and not have to worry about parking and That's having really your stuff point. stolen out of your car. I like it. You're right. That's a really good point. So, yeah. but you but you do, you definitely have to have the cash flow to know that okay, this is going to be you know hitting your account and yep. you better you know it may cost you fifteen twenty bucks to to get across town. Yeah. And if you're living close to the edge financially and you got fifty bucks in your account. Yep. <laughs> yes. It's you got to be a little bit better financial uh, planner than that. Yep, that's true. And that's that's another thing where you learn to bill. You know, you bill for what that ride would be, but plus a little more because you had to actually take the time to get the get the car there, the Lyft or the Uber. So I, I totally see what you mean. And systems now are small enough where you could have a, a little two channel chain, you know, if with a mic, small small setup like you've got, small setups like I've got, and you can throw it in a backpack. You're right. You could you could do that if that if that's what you were doing. If it wasn't a full band recording. You know where you needed to yeah. have mic stands, mics. Uh, you know enough, uh, enough. Um, something like an Orion, which is any any of the larger audio interfaces are going to require you carrying it in a case, and that's going to be you're going you're a target at that point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but again, it's not public transportation in terms of Muni. You'd be taking a Lyft, so you'd probably be okay actually, or a, or an Uber. Yeah, I mean, you'd be going door to yeah, door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really, really good to talk to you and and get this this view. I've known you for a long time, and I don't know all the 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 details of your career so this is good to kind of get it encapsulated oh nice thanks man and 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 have you on so let me do a plug for the college if you don't mind oh absolutely we've got a full complement at city college of san francisco in the broadcast electronic media arts department of video audio top-notch gear we're always getting new gear on grants and things and great faculty we've all had lots of years of experience and it's free for people who live in San Francisco, and it's 46 bucks a unit from anywhere else in the, in the state. And there's a lot of online classes, though we don't offer too many online in our department, but we have a few. And it's really great educational experience. And I got to say, in the, uh, in the world of for-profit colleges and uh, where people are piling up student debt, yeah. uh, this is City College of San Francisco is a great option. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've taken uh, a bunch of classes in business and history at City College yeah. myself. So great things to say about that. I know yeah. that there was a little hiccup there where somebody with an agenda was trying to derail City College, and yeah. that's since passed. And that person yeah. has been discovered to be a bit that's of a right. fraud, if I recall correctly. Absolutely um, was. Yeah, we're we're in the we're at the top of the state again, which is great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are in California and you are interested in learning all of these different audio professions or concepts and you'd like to come, it's it's quite affordable. Yeah. Well, cool, Dana. Great to talk with you and uh, I, I, I'll see you around the Bay Area. Yeah, most definitely. Good right to on. see you and uh, thanks again. Right on, Matt. Thanks okay. you. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dana J. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Of course, we got to thank everybody. And uh, before we go, I do want to say happy holidays to all of you. And I do want to start off by thanking, of course, Cliff Truesdale and Chuck Smith. Happy holidays once again to all of you and uh, safe travels if you're traveling. And until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>